yeah, we we do think that there was a critical moment uh, where a sufficient numbers of uh, humans um, became explicitly aware of the inevitability of death, and that that was a, a cosmic big bang that altered the course of our evolutionary trajectory. Today's guest is Sheldon Solomon. Sheldon is a social psychologist at Skidmore College in New York. Along with his colleagues Jeff Greenberg and Tom Pajinski, he wrote The Worm at the Core, a book which examines how humans deal with their own sense of mortality. Inspired by the work of the cultural anthropologist Ernest Becker, Sheldon has been working for many years to understand how the uniquely human awareness of mortality motivates every individual and societal action. I was first introduced to Sheldon's work when he was interviewed by Lex Friedman and his ideas immediately resonated with me. He's a truly kind and insightful guy and I had a great time talking to him. I hope you enjoy the episode. Yeah, sending this one out to my man Killer B. So just for the listeners, Sheldon, could you just introduce yourself and the work that you've been uh, doing for the last uh, several decades? Yes, certainly, Julius, and thank you for uh, having me today. Uh, My name's Sheldon Solomon. I'm an experimental uh, social psychologist. I I work at Skidmore College, which is in uh, Saratoga Springs, uh, New York in the United States. And Uh, For the past almost four decades, uh, I've been working with my friends uh, from graduate school, Jeff Greenberg and and Tom Pazinski, and we developed what's called terror management theory, uh, which is basically our effort to take ideas by a cultural anthropologist, a guy named Ernest Becker, um, who wrote a book that we find very provocative uh, in the 1970s? Uh, Becker wrote *The Denial of Death* and won a Pulitzer Prize, I believe, in 1974 uh, for his efforts. Uh, and our work is basically designing experiments that enable us to test hypotheses that's derived from his efforts. And uh, in a proverbial nutshell, uh, Becker was interested in understanding the motivational underpinnings of human behavior. And what he argued um, was that uh, people are not that much different than other living creatures in that we're biologically predisposed to want to survive. On the other hand, we're extraordinarily different by virtue of our sophisticated cognitive capacities that allow us to do some amazing stuff, you know, including imagining things that don't even exist and then having the audacity uh, to make our dreams real. 
And amongst our uh, rather sophisticated cognitive facilities is uh, explicit self-awareness. And um, and this idea dates back to the philosopher Kierkegaard, who said, wow, we're so smart that we realize that we're here. And Becker's point is following Kierkegaard is that that's incredibly uplifting, but also potentially debilitating and demoralizing. Because if you're smart enough to know that you're here, uh, you're also smart enough to know that like all living things, uh, you're going to die. And you can die at any time for reasons that you can't anticipate or control. And just to knee us in the groin, Becker adds that we also realize that we're embodied animals, that we're just respiring pieces of meat that are no more significant or enduring uh, than turtles or turnips. And what Becker argues is that if that's the only thing we ever thought about, I'm going to die, I can walk outside and get hit by a comet, and I'm a breathing piece of defecating meat, we wouldn't be able to stand up in the morning. We'd be overwhelmed um, with the existential terror, which he claims that we manage uh, by embedding ourselves or embracing culturally constructed belief systems, he calls them cultural worldviews, that we share with people in our group that reduces death anxiety by giving us each a sense that life has meaning and that we have value. Uh, and, uh, and that uh, if uh, we believe that we're persons of value in a world of meaning, uh, that gives us some opportunity, he argues, to acquire uh, immortality, either literally or, or symbolically. And, and his view is that, and our view, is that whether we're aware of it or not, uh, we are primarily and fundamentally motivated at all times to maintain faith in our culturally constructed beliefs and confidence in our value uh, within the context uh, of those beliefs. And moreover, when existential anxieties of any kind are aroused, again, whether we're aware of it or not, uh, that instigates defensive reactions to bolster confidence in our worldviews and inflate our sense of self-regard. So I would say in a nutshell, that's pretty much what Becker was about and what we do. Talking about the paralyzing effect of being aware of our own death, would you say that it's more specifically that we're aware of our insignificance, not just terror of death, but specifically aware that um, we are completely insignificant and that in order to, to justify the primacy of our lives or, or the primacy of ourselves within our lives, that's more the motivation for dispelling this fear of death rather than an actual specific terror of death. It's how can we logically justify putting um, our best foot forward uh, when we know that at the end of the day, we're all just going to be you know, shadows and dust, so to speak. That, that's an awesome question, uh, actually, Julius. What, um, what some folks speculate, and, I, and I'm agnostic on this point, um, is that uh, our fear of radical insignificance. Uh, well, no, let me back up. What, what Becker would say is that it's death 
uh, and it's because we're aware of and concerned about uh, being summarily and totally obliterated when we die, uh, that it, being inconsequential is so traumatic and traumatizing. What folks of that uh, bent would, I believe, argue is that uh, if we were immortal, it wouldn't bother us one bit to be inconsequential, because in fact, everything uh, would be inconsequential under those conditions. So it's almost like life, that's so interesting. So life gives, well, I guess death gives life meaning because it makes everything much more consequential, but at the same time inconsequential because <laughs> because it's over. Yeah, there you go. So I, you know, I wish there was a linear argument here. Yeah. here, here we <laughs> Been driving you crazy for decades, Sheldon. Yeah, it has. It's, it, it is a psychological like those MOBA strips that mm. kind of bend back on themselves. But I like the way that you just frame that. Yeah, because, of course, if we live forever, our actions wouldn't be insignificant because they, had, they have a permanence to our lives because they just go on and on. But then, but then the reverse is also true. That's so paradoxical. That must be so frustrating for you. Yeah, no, it is. And, and uh, some of the existential types that I'm fond of, they wrestle with that idea. And then they point out how in the Greek tragedies, you know, the gods, they're, they're immortal. Uh, but, they, and, uh, but they envy the mortals. Yeah, they're mm. bored and it's all banal. So, I, <laughs> mm. And yet if there's a wait list for immortality, I'm tempted to sign up. So it has Yeah, same here. <laughs> Same here. I heard you say on Lex Friedman's podcast that you had once had to examine Macbeth from a psychodynamic perspective. I actually named my podcast after Macbeth's Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow speech with recorded time. Um, so I'd love to begin by looking at that speech and discuss what you find particularly interesting about it, especially in relation to the role of death in life. Wow. I mean, it's, you know, as you know, it's one of the most famous passages um, in um, English literature. I've always found it um, arresting whenever I bump into it uh, for a few reasons, particularly for folks who are familiar with the play, because uh, this is uh, Macbeth having a particularly bad day. Uh, I would submit. And um, Becker, Ernest Becker, whose work I know well and I admire a great deal, you know, he his second book, I believe, was a book about depression. And I, I think that Becker um, that would characterize Macbeth. Well, I know he would. He's like, oh, man, this guy is depressed. And in in Becker's way of thinking about things, you know, when one is depressed, it's because for any number of reasons, you're no longer able or willing to share in the culturally constructed reality that uh, pervades your world at the time. And in Becker's language, that makes us disillusioned and demoralized. And so here's Macbeth, you know, just surveying everything. Uh, you know, realizing um, in, in to be glib, you know, that we're all culturally constructed meat puppets who kind of stagger through life, um, you know, mistaking our way of life for the way of life. Uh, and 
I, I and you know we strut and we fret uh, about matters that seem to be of the utmost importance. Uh, in uh, you know so and so. Uh, you know, cut ahead of me at the grocery store or, or so-and-so makes more money uh, than I do, or, uh, geez, my football team uh, didn't win yesterday. What an amazing and appalling tragedy. Uh, and of course, the point is, is that in the overall cosmic scheme of things, uh, often what we perceive to be the most immediately pressing and important matters are in fact not particularly or even at all uh, inherently meaningful. You know, hence the idea uh, of, uh, you know, an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. The other thing about this uh, quote that I'm really fond of, Julius, is just that I love William Faulkner. And so his book, The Sound and the Fury, you know, taken from this passage and phrase, is just a particularly striking work because the narrator of the book is mentally impaired. And so we're seeing the world in Faulkner's sense, you know, we're seeing somebody looking at the world from that perspective. It's, you, yeah, it's do you see that, that line specifically uh, is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing? Is that what Becker would call a cultural worldview, a, a, a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury. It's, you know, it's the, the story we tell ourselves to justify our existence. I, um, I think that that's certainly one dimension. Uh, you know, and I know we're going to, I hope, get to this later on in our conversation, but this is not to suggest uh, that all of our cultural constructions are patently false and or are devoid of any value, uh, you know, beyond being psychological heroin to mitigate our existential anxieties. And certainly, uh, I believe that that's what uh, Shakespeare's doing here. Mm. Uh, which so he's, is, he's taking a more pessimistic view of it, but you would say that these cultural worldviews aren't necessarily as self-deceptive and stupid as, you know, yeah, I would. Might, might That's yeah. right. I, yeah. I would say that this is Shakespeare um, um, looking at uh, life through the eyes of somebody who's extraordinarily depressed while also pointing out, uh, you know, what all of the existentialists, you know, everybody, uh, you know, from uh, Nietzsche to Camus, uh, you know, Camus best known for his just depiction of life as absurd. And yet, you know, for Camus, that's not on that's not unequivocally uh, terrible. So that's right. So we'll have more to say about that, I hope. Do you think Shakespeare, whether he says it explicitly or not, um, was aware of the ideas that Becker uh, wrote about in the 1970s? Because, I mean, I mean that, that speech seems just like the perfect expression of Becker's claim, even the way, I mean, like tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, the way he says it, it's almost like it's occurring to Macbeth as he speaks. And it's, there, it's, so. like, it's, and it's like it just... It's just, and like words like creeps, it's almost like death is just, it's always omnipresent, but it's no, just no, beneath I, our thoughts. 
Absolutely. In my mind, you know, Shakespeare anticipated uh, modernity uh, and all of the existentialists who came after, not that there weren't profound existential thinkers before, but yeah, the next several centuries uh, were existentialists, in my mind, taking Shakespeare's plays and rendering them in discursive form. Uh, but uh, everything that I, I admire um, in, um, in Becker's work and in other existentialists, you can always find a, a Shakespeare quote that um, really captures that notion. Just the idea of the mortal coil. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it, he's got everything. He's got DNA. <laughs> he's got, uh, you know, mortality and a... Uh, you know, and when I think of a coil, it gets back to things not being straightforward and linear. Yeah, mm. he, he had a lot of fine thoughts. He's such a strange artist, like just how he seems to have the wisdom of, you know, 10 of the greatest philosophers and then the artistic talent of 10 of the greatest artists all put together. And how about the, um, you know, the comedy of like 10 of the greatest comedians? Mm. Mm. He was a funny guy, and some of his best jokes are, are juxtaposed uh, with some of the most blatant death images. And so I think he also uh, had a very keen understanding of the role of humor and the role uh, of love and camaraderie and community. Uh, and, um, yeah, he, he nailed it when... He uh, was uh, in his, um, you know, continuous contemplations uh, of death and uh, how that can often uh, bring out the worst in us. But he saw the other side. He had a very rounded view of Mm. humankind. Uh, You know, my goal before I keel over or retire is to have the equivalent of like a high school education in the Middle Ages. And so I want to get back to Shakespeare but do it kind of methodically and, and just read things in the order that he supposedly produced them. Mm. And it's interesting what you said there about his skill with comedy as well because it's such, I mean, I think it's much easier to sound profound and um, th- th- than it is to be funny. So it's such a... I, absolutely, that's right. Um, death, I think, is particularly scary because it's the idea that life goes on without you. Do you think that creative people are motivated to create because they feel that posterity can beat this fear? I think that's that's quite right. Uh, more importantly, um, uh, Becker um, has a, a chapter in The Denial of Death about creativity. He sees it at its best uh, as a benign or benevolent form of uh, pursuing uh, death transcendence. And, and he bases that idea uh, uh, on another guy, Otto Ronk, one of Freud's disciples. And so Ronk wrote a book, 1930-something, uh, I think 1932, called Art and Artist. Uh, and it was Ronk's view uh, that artists are driven in part by their yearning for immortality. Uh, and Robert J. Lifton, a psychohistorian in the 1980s, um, he he described that in terms of symbolic immortality. Uh, and um, Lifton's like, yeah, some people believe in, in the heavens and the souls and the reincarnations of all the world's great religions. Other people 
have a, a completely secular take on these matters, uh, but they're no less concerned that some vestige of their existence persist over time nonetheless. And uh, even the ancient Greeks were aware of this. They're like, that's why we might want to have children. That's why we might amass great fortunes. It's why we might want to uh, produce great works of science or art. And yes, um, it seems to me uh, that um, that people who realize that uh, there's a good chance that they're widely known and that they will continue to be known over time, I think that takes some of the edge uh, mm -hmm. off. Um, concerns about mortality for sure. Because I imagine someone like Michelangelo, I mean, aside from his Christian convictions, was far less scared of death because he knew we'd be talking about him 500 years from now. And I think geniuses, I think geniuses more than anyone else are aware of how good they are. That's what makes them so good at art. So, yeah, I imagine Michelangelo would have been very aware of that. Yes. Is, it, is our knowledge of our death the key difference between us and all other living creatures? Well, um, sure, uh, uh, at least from this vantage point. Uh, there was a Scottish essayist, Alexander Smith, who wrote a book called Dreamthwarp, I think 1863. And there's a little essay uh, in, uh, in that book. It's a book of essays. And he says, it is our knowledge that we have to die uh, that makes us human. Uh, and so... That's one possibility. Uh, other folks um, have other ways of distinguishing us. Uh, you know, Aristotle, uh, just the notion of homo sapiens, that we're fundamentally rational creatures. Uh, there was uh, an anthropologist, Joseph Heusinger, homo ludens, we're fundamentally playful creatures. You got Hannah Arendt saying we're fundamentally tool-making creatures. Other people say we're fundamentally aesthetic creatures. Other people say we're narratizing storytelling entities. And um, yeah, I think as a heuristic, every one of those descriptions has some merit, uh, noting that animals are plenty rational and plenty playful, and they do make things. And and so on and so forth. Uh, yeah, I'm um, perhaps not surprisingly being devoted to Becker's work and having uh, done studies about it. We adhere to the view that 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 is a key, if not the key difference. And then so our knowledge of our immortality is the key to consciousness in general, you and Becker would argue. Yes, he would. So that's quite interesting to think about, though. So almost at the instant that man became aware of his own mortality, just the psychological crisis of that is sort of like the magical spark that generated, you know, what makes us human and have a sense of, con you know, have a, a sense of consciousness and that's fascinating. Yes, if, it if is. True. Now, if it's true. Yeah. Right. If it's even remotely mm. true, it's like uh, any, well, not, I'm not an evolutionary um, psychologist by trade, but 
my understanding is that all of these um, evolutionary accounts are, you know, of necessity somewhat uh, highly speculative. But uh, yeah, we we do think that there was a critical moment uh, where a sufficient numbers of uh, humans um, became explicitly aware of the inevitability of death, and that that was a, a cosmic big bang that altered the course of our evolutionary trajectory, and. We argue, uh, based on archaeological evidence, that um, you know, in a relatively short amount of time, uh, you've got um, what is it—the appearance of art and uh, body adornment, things like jewelry and ritual burials with sophisticated grave goods. So you you see all of a sudden um, people spending an inordinate amount of time dressing up the deceased elaborately and burying them with all kinds of valuable commodities. And um, our point is it sure seems like there was a very devoted effort to not die uh, that arises simultaneously uh, with the birth of Homo sapiens sapiens. And so we see the evolution of consciousness and death denial uh, as being inextricably connected. Do you think there was a period where we were Homo sapiens as uh, we know ourselves today, um, but where we didn't have an understanding of our own mortality and where we existed essentially as animals rather than as conscious creatures? Yeah, a lot of folks, yes. So a lot of folks argue that the consciousness didn't necessarily entail a radical uh, neuroanatomical change in our brains. And so uh, it's quite likely uh, that uh, some say uh, that we did exist uh, in uh, a not quite explicitly aware um, form. Uh, which is how we spend most of our waking moments anyway. Yeah. And, but, but the argument is that full-blown consciousness, you know, in psychobabble, an extended theory of mind where you're not only uh, aware that you exist, but you're aware that other people exist. And not only that, you're aware that they have mental states that might not coincide with your own. Now, a lot of animals have that, but we've got it, uh, you know, raised to the power of three or four levels. You know, it's like, I know that you know that I think that you know this, but I know that you don't know and here and so on. Just these different levels of meta inference, um, self-reference piled on top of self-reference yeah, the argument is we're the only creatures that have that degree of self-reflection. Uh, and um, there's some folks who I like a lot, Ajit Varki and Danny Brower, a geneticist and a microbiologist, respectively. Um, Ajit is a microbiologist, and they wrote a book a few years ago called Denial. And they argue that, um, yeah, consciousness as we know it in humans uh, that it, it could not have arisen evolutionarily 
uh, without the concurrent defense mechanisms that enable us uh, to be explicitly aware of everything except the reality of the human condition, which would have crushed us. That's so interesting as well because once we become, at the moment we became aware um, of that other people exist just as we exist, that other people have a fear of death just as we have a fear of death. I mean, the word people would use would be love for that, but I guess it's just a more uh, sophisticated form of preservation of the species. I mean, like you see, um, I mean, you see bears that, um, or and all sorts of animals that if they've got a um, a child or a child, you know, uh, uh, an offspring that is holding the pack back, they um, you know they kill it or they get rid of it or feed it to the other um, to the other the other bears. But humans are uniquely capable of pres- wanting to preserve someone else's life because we are conscious of them as a creature just like us, whereas animals don't have that. That's right. At least for humans, we we at our best are uh, you know quite altruistic and pro-social towards members of our own tribe or nation or cultural worldview. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it doesn't go so well uh, for others. Yeah, yeah. Is is our sense of self-preservation? Do you think motivated more by our knowledge of death or? by an, just like an innate evolutionary predis- predisposition or are they the same thing? Yeah, well, um, that's an awesome question. And like a lot of good ones, I'm going to punt because I I, I literally uh, have been thinking about that and I, yeah, I, I don't, no, I think it could they they could be the same thing. And they could be two different things. But it's it's also like chicken or the egg. It is, and that's why I, exactly mm. right, Julius. That's a fine observation. And the reason why uh, I'm stumbling a bit, because I it's one of these uh, I'm having a hard time not seeing it as kind of circular uh, and yeah. recursive. I'm trying. I'm even trying to think of it myself quite slowly. Yeah, I mean, I but I I can go back and tell you that, for example, Ernest Becker in the Denial of Death, um, he he says, look, death anxiety is the inevitable result of a, a biological entity programmed by billions of years of evolution uh, to want to preserve itself. If you make that entity conscious then death anxiety is the inevitable result. It couldn't yeah. be any other way. I'm so, I'm just really, it's such a hard question, isn't it? <laughs> like I, I wrote that question and I didn't actually consider how tricky it is, but it's so interesting. Well, I guess, hmm, it's almost like, because like a bacteria or, you know, like amoebas, they have this innate sense of self-preservation, but I don't think they're, conscious of their own mortality and scared of it in the same way. So I, I imagine the, predisp- the predisposition towards self-preservation came first and then you could almost imagine the knowledge of our death being just like a levelling up of that ability, a, a, a sophistication of that way of preserving ourselves. That's right. Uh, 
Another, but, but, uh, but again, Becker's point is that we pay a heavy price for that, for mm. our sophistication, because he, he just says, well, what that does is to turn us into uh, hyper anxious animals who get well back to Shakespeare, who get worried uh, about. So the amoeba is only worried when it re- when its life is actually threatened. Mm. Um, we, through, uh, you know, our elaborate and sophisticated cognitive apparatus uh, are, uh, have the potential to be apprehensive at all times about all things, even mm. when our life is not in direct danger. Yeah. Even just thinking about that, um, Macbeth monologue again, it's, I was just thinking, so he says, Shakespeare says to the last syllable of recorded time to keyword syllable and recorded. And it's, that goes back to that idea of what I was saying. It's the terror that life goes on without you. So he's almost insinuating that the universe will go on regardless, you know, once humans, um, you know, uh, go extinct. So it's by saying the last syllable, he's emphasising that. It can, that that's, it's, that's brilliant. He, uh, keeps, he keeps pointing out that uh, the humanly designated ends are arbitrary yeah. and that uh, nature is benignly indifferent. And he gets to that, that that's the most haunting fear of death. Like you or I would be scared of dying thinking that our loved ones go on without us, but he's almost thinking like think of the last man that ever exists. Exactly. Uh, that's fascinating. Another is another thing that distinguishes us from other living creatures is it our ability to defy our instincts and respond variably to situations? And in answering that, could you also explain what Becker meant by freedom of reactivity? Yeah, I would be happy to. And that, that's an awesome query. Uh, so another anthropologist, a guy named Melvin Connor, um, I like how he puts it, um, which is not so much that we're defying our instincts, but Connor's point is that we are instinctively predisposed to respond variably. And he calls that adaptability. And even though this sounds uh, like a semantic game, he says adaptability is a uniquely human adaptation. So uh, just to be uh, you know, consistent with the way that evolutionary types would put it today, it's not that humans have abandoned our instincts. It's just that we have an innate proclivity to be able to respond uh, in any given situation in a more variable way uh, than other creatures. All right. And this gets us to Becker's idea of freedom of reactivity, which he introduces in one of my favorite books of his called The Birth and Death of Meaning. Uh, and he's like, okay, you know, what's the difference between humans and other creatures? And he's very simple. He just is like, well, humans have complex minds. But of course, that doesn't tell us anything unless we define mind and complexity. And then he's like, okay, mind, uh, I just mean reactivity, that any entity that systematically reacts to the vagaries of its surroundings I'm calling that a mind. And so by that um, definition, of course, we have minds uh, and uh, lizards have minds. 
but so do plants because, you know, they will move in the direction of the sun, let's say. So here he's just following Aristotle's distinction between animate and inanimate. So anything alive is reactive, but, uh, but, but some things are more comp complex than others. Th and th things that are, everything is, al everything that is alive is reactive, but nothing is less predictable than humans. That's right. And so reactions. here comes the complexity part. And that's awesome. So you already got it. His point is that we have complex minds and he defines complexity in terms of increasing or progressive freedom of reactivity, which he then defines as the extent to which an organism's behavior is determined by the stimuli that evoke it. All right, so English translation, let's go back to the amoeba. Um, he's like, all right, you, you know, if you have an amoeba on a microscope slide and you put a drop of glucose right next to it, uh, the amoeba will automatically move towards it unless it's already satiated. But if it hasn't eaten in a bit, um, it, it'll move towards it. Uh, and if you put like battery acid on the slide, the amoeba will move in the other direction. But Becker's point is that's the those are invariable responses. The amoeba either does nothing or it moves towards something or, or away from something. You know, the amoeba doesn't say, well, I'm going to wait here till my fellow amoebas come because I want company when I'm eating. It doesn't say I don't I don't want glucose. You know, I'm going to call and order a pizza or whatever. So his point is that the amoeba has a mind, but it's a very simple mind because for every stimulus, there's one and only one inevitable response. And then he's like, all right, let's go one level up and let's do Pavlov's dogs with classical conditioning. And so he's like, okay, a dog's hungry. Uh, you put meat in front of its face and it automatically salivates. Uh, and But you don't need, that's not learning. That's just innate. Uh, and then you ring a bell that the dog's never heard before. Uh, and, uh, uh, and the Becker's point is that bell means nothing at, at this point uh, because the, the dog's never heard it before. Uh, but if you ring the bell, Every time before you feed the dog, there'll come a moment uh, where the, the bell will produce salivation, even if there's no meat. That's where he gets the term, the birth of meaning, because his point is, here's a situation uh, where the dog uh, is no longer bound to the physical stimulus of the meat. It's able to extend the range of its behavioral repertoire through the capacity to associate the bell with the meat, right? And then he keeps going. He's like, all right, uh, what about the Wolfgang Kohler, the guy who did uh, work with chimps at the beginning of the 20th century, where Kohler would hang a banana from a, a rope on the ceiling uh, and chimps um, would not be able to reach it. And they would just be jumping up and down uh, and sort of hanging out, looking awfully depressed. And then he would leave like a broomstick in the corner of the room. And all of a sudden, uh, he, uh, he he observed the apes would, uh, all of a sudden, he called it insight. They would be like, oh, shit, I figured it out. 
they would run over, they grab the broom, uh, and they'd knock the banana down. All right, now, his point is that it's a broom, it's not a banana knocker. And so the next day, the hungry ape is put in the room with the banana hanging from the ceiling, and there's no broom there, right? But there's a table. Right, well, the table doesn't look like a broom, but the animal has no trouble pulling the table over in order to get at the banana. Freedom of reactivity. There's more than one way to accomplish the same thing. And my favorite thing is when there's nobody, no brooms or tables the next day, but Kohler walks in, the guy doing the work, and the monkey just grabs him and steps on his shoulders in order to get the banana. And, and so, and then Becker says, yeah, but humans, we are the ultimate in terms of freedom of reactivity by virtue of our capacity for symbols, because uh, we're not limited. Uh, by the what currently exists in the world around us uh, through language and symbols. Uh, if we don't have a satisfactory way of describing something, we can create new words or new ideas. And hence, uh, we are not completely detached from the demands of our surroundings. Uh, but we are substantially more flexible, or as you put it earlier, more variable. Uh, and uh, of course, variation is uh, almost invariably a, a good thing because it is through variation uh, that we're more likely to be able to creatively respond to changing circumstances. It's through uh, variation that I would submit that that fosters creativity. Uh, and so I, I like Becker's depiction of cognitive complexity being reflected in our capacity to have a varied response to any given situation. But why did we not have a limit with the degree to which we could react to something. Why? I mean, animals have language to a degree, but why does it stop so far short of the way we can communicate? Yeah, that's a because they're they're because they're they have freedom of reactivity. Then just like a much narrow narrower version of it. Than, than yeah. Them. Now, so uh, this gets back to depends who you ask, and uh, that I'm probably abjectly ignorant. Uh, in this domain, the, the backers of the world uh, tie it to symbols. Uh, and their, their view is that animals communicate and they do so very effectively, uh, but that they don't have uh, symbolic capacity. And that's what would it make. Are. Would the difference maybe be that they can communicate about, uh, they can react to physical things, but they can't communicate about abstractions? That would be a, a good way of thinking about it. That's right. You know, it reminds me of the way that I present these ideas to the young students, because I, in fact, I just talked about this earlier in the week. I was like, oh, bees communicate. Uh, you know, they do a little dance and it's a figure eight and it varies in terms of its direction relative to where the sun is. And it also varies in terms of how long the dance goes. And, and that, that's the way that bees tell other bees where the food is. Uh, you know, the angle of the eight is the direction and the length of the dance is distance. 
Yeah, and they're, they're tremendous communicators. They can tell you where and how far. Mm. Uh, but it, th those are considered closed systems because they're limited by uh, what, as you put it, and I think that's compelling by uh, that reference to physical stimuli. And it takes symbolization to conjure up an image of that which currently does not yet exist. I find it so frustrating when sort of more reductionist thinkers always sort of say that, you know, there's nothing special about humans. Um, we're just, you know, other animals, you know, that will like our, our lives are of no consequence at all. Because I've always, with that whole freedom of reactivity idea, I've always just thought the strangest, and part, this is partly why your ideas resonated with me so much, is I've always just thought there's something so strange about in like, everything in the universe obeys laws, laws of physics, laws of nature, animals obey their instincts, but humans are the one thing that can defy their instincts and vary so much in their reactions. And it sort of gives us almost like a like a, a cosmic significance. I find it so think, weird to think of like the vastness of space and there's this tiny pocket where this one superpower exists. No, I like that. Uh, I, uh, you know, and it cuts both ways. So I, I like that. And in my most... Um, what would be, yeah, in my most optimistic and cheerful moments. I, I think that's great. Yeah, and then it's like, oh, yeah, and then it's back to Nietzsche, you know, who's like, oh, consciousness is the most calamitous stupidity by which we shall someday perish. And I'm yeah. like, oh, all right. there's And a he's, he's not wrong there, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is a quote from the abstract of your paper, Tales from the Crypt. Um Quote, psychological equanimity is hypothesized to require, one, a shared set of beliefs about reality that imbues the universe with stability, meaning, and permanence. Two, standards by which individuals can judge themselves to be of value. And three, promises of safety and, trans and the transcendence of death to those who meet the standards of value. Each one of these requirements seems, at least to me, to be the complete opposite of a postmodern view of the world. Do you think that postmodernism has a destabilizing and destructive effect on our sort of collective psychological equanimity? I suspect that you are uh, profoundly and poignantly onto something. Um, back to Nietzsche, you know, the gay science, his famous declaration that God is dead. And as I tell my students, you know, read the rest of the paragraph because he goes on to say Christianity has become unbelievable. And he's not being cynical here. He was observing in the 1800s that, you know, the belief system that Europeans shared uh, with relative uh, consensus for thousands of years, the Judeo-Christian uh, worldview uh, was being radically undermined by the Enlightenment with the stress on, you know, rationality and reason uh, and, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, you know, just the dismissal of religion uh, as an infantile affectation that we will somehow outgrow. And then you had Darwin's theory of evolution, and we had the Industrial Revolution, and all of those things. Uh, you know, it sure looked like uh, traditional belief systems uh, were 
just kind of a figment of a, a bygone day. And Nietzsche said, I think there's going to be 200 years of, 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 of really serious upheaval. And it'll, it'll take centuries to extricate ourselves from the psychic rubble that he believed was about to descend upon us. Uh, and, you know, this is what, and then uh, Oswald Spangler, one of uh, Nietzsche's um, uh, guy that comes after, he writes a book called The Decline of the West, and he keeps going. He says, Western civilization, uh, it's at the beginning of the end. It may take a couple of hundred years, uh, but uh, Spangler continuing on Nietzsche's um, line of thought, he just says that, you know, we don't any longer have a credible overarching, you know, cultural framework that can be embraced by the majority of people. And in Spangler's way of thinking about things, the result is just disjointed upheaval on every front, political polarization, uh, people taking refuge in cults and becoming attracted uh, to like religious gurus or, or charismatic fascist political leaders. Uh, and they become nihilistically and narcissistically uh, preoccupied. It's almost, uh, either, it's, almost like we, it's almost like we go back to a square one of sort of the quest to perfect our um, moral ideal. Because, it I mean, is back to square one. That's mm, correct. But, uh, you know, but yes, yeah, stumbling around. Uh, in the psychic desert, um, you know, either just, uh, you know, in a, uh, you know, an inebriated stupor mm. or, or back to Shakespeare, just raving, um, uh, you know, the sound and the fury. Mm. Yeah, that's why, I mean, that's probably one of the most uh, misinterpreted lines ever, Nietzsche's God is dead. And I just hate it when people, well, I hate's a strong word, but it's frustrating when, people discount the sophistication of past sort of religious ideologies, whether that be uh, Judaism, Islam or Christianity. It's um, people just, you know, you hear like a Ricky Gervais type be like, you know, the world wasn't, you know, built in seven days, was it? And you're just like, no, that's not the point. It's... um, Yeah, it's not the point. That's... (laughs) We abandon it at our peril regardless. But, um, yeah, how would you... what? Is there no, like, that's the argument Jordan Peterson makes, of course, but it's, what, is there any alternative then to continuing um, sort of a Judeo-Christian culture? Because if, if we abandon it at our peril and we don't have a uh, societal framework or a um, cultural framework that we can um, pivot to, does that mean the best move forward is to retain sort of our Christian convictions? Well, that, that's actually, it's a really fine point that we'll certainly not resolve. I wish we had Jordan here um, so we can talk about it together. We've agreed to disagree about things, uh, although we, I believe we agree about more than we disagree about because uh, I think uh, in his work and in ours, um, we agree that humans uh, are, you know, fundamentally meaning-making creatures who 
yearn for heroic transcendence in light of the reality of the human condition. I think Jordan is also on the right track uh, when he points out that to summarily dispose of any longstanding cultural worldview, we do so at our peril. Uh, and I, I think he's also right about that. In fact, I like the, the way that um, evolutionary psychologists talk about cultural evolution these days. Um, a guy named Joseph Henrik, I can't remember uh, the name of his book. There's several of them. Um, and they're all, they're all based on the argument that what makes human beings extraordinarily special is not so much that we're smarter than other creatures, but we're smarter in a very particular way that allows us to accumulate knowledge and to pass it on over time. So every one of us that's alive today is the beneficiary of thousands of years of hard-won experience that is conferred upon us, not only explicitly, but it's embedded in all of our traditions and all of our institutions. And to me, the best argument of, in support of a conservative political orientation is we should be reluctant to dispose of anything that has been around for a very long time because culture may be smarter than any of us. There may be reasons why we do the things that we do uh, because over thousands of years, um, the, it turns out that that really may be the best way to do things. All right. Having said that, though, um, you know, if we took the conservative view too literally, we wouldn't be talking to each other over Zoom. Uh, we'd maybe be sitting on the floor of a cave, uh, you know, exchanging pleasantries as we chew we on a dead squirrel. At least we wouldn't be locked down, Sheldon. Yeah, no, that's. <laughs> I might take the cave at the moment. Yeah, so I, 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 I understand, and I think yes, we should um, always be reluctant to just summarily say, "Oh, we don't need that um, anymore." Uh, and, um, and, but uh, it's also the case. Uh, that human progress uh, has been in part uh, a result of our capacity to change over time. And so here I am trying to have it both ways, because where I will respectfully disagree with Jordan and the Steven Pinkers of the world, let's say, is when they say, let's just keep doing what we're doing, the Judeo-Christian tradition and capitalism in the form of an unregulated free market, you know, all of the good things that have happened to humanity are due to that. Mm. So let's keep doing that. Now, in my view, if we keep doing that, we will be the first form of life to be responsible for our own extinction because there's a downside uh, to pursuing things in that fashion. Even if we accept uh, that uh, both of those worldviews uh, were very functional uh, for a long amount of time for certain people in certain places. I, I like Henrik's point, um, which is that 
ultimately all cultural worldviews are derived from and tied to local knowledge and experience. And my view is that the world that we currently inhabit uh, is substantially different in so many ways than any prior precedent in human history. Uh, that yeah, I'm not saying uh, that um, we should all agree to abandon all of our prior history or traditions. So much as that uh, we should exist in the context of them while we try quite ardently uh, to not be imprisoned by them. Is it presumptuous to think that uh, what we take as you know secular moral values, uh, you know, whether that just be treating each other with respect? Um, or whatever, do we? Is it presumptuous to think that that came of nothing rather than that came from? I mean, it's recycling Jordan Peterson's um ideas a bit here, but you know, the idea that Jesus, whether you believe in Christianity or not, sort of represents uh this ideal that we can strive for, um, and sort of the 2000 years of constantly striving for that ideal and perfecting our values towards that is is it. Is that possibly where we get our um, supposedly secular values from uh, this 2,000 years sort of training camp of working towards a particular moral ideal? Because I've always found it so strange, like, like because I'm, I'm a bit of a nerd for ancient Roman history um, and I've always just found it so strange, you know, you just reading about the brutality of that time and, um, and just, you know, pagan culture in general and then all of us, it's so strange to think that whether, you know, the New Testament is true or not, if a single quote from it is true, it's such a bizarre text because, you know, uh, love your enemy as a concept just seems so profound um, in the context of that time. So is it is it long-winded way of asking do we get our value, our secular values today from these uh, Christian traditions? Yeah. No, that I mean, that's an awesome point. Um, there's a British philosopher who I admire, a guy named John Gray, and he writes books making that argument that secular humanism is... Uh, basically the Judeo-Christian tradition funneled through the Enlightenment for better and worse. That, uh, you know, we see ourselves uh, on the good side. Yeah, at our best, we have taken some of uh, Jesus's uh, mandates to heart, our responsibility uh, for our fellow humans. And, 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 and that uh, is really radically important. Um, on the other hand, uh, John Gray points out that um, where that secular humanism is still a fundamentally religious worldview. Mm. Uh, we don't worship God anymore. We worship money and progress and, and, the and science. People, pardon me. And science as well. And science as well. Absolutely. Mm. Nicely done. Let's new- get that in there. Science uh, as an overarching ideology rather than a tool in a broader assortment of human capacities. Yeah, that that's uh, really quite nicely done. But what I would say, though, is that uh, we haven't gone 
far enough. And in other words, um, I like the I, I, some of the most earth-shattering consequences of Christianity. It was the first, if I'm not bungling this, it was the first truly cosmopolitan and democratic religion that welcomed everybody. You know that that you know it was the first big tent, and they meant it. Uh, and like that's awesome, but I can't help but notice uh, that it, you know it's fundamental Christians, fundamentalist Christians in my country, uh, that if you'll pardon the expression, are generally fucking Nazis, and they're the ones <laughs> responsible for electing um, the guy that used to be president, Orange Hitler, or I mean, Donald Trump. <laughs> and so I, I'm not seeing it. Um, mm. And I, I don't mind being annoying here. Uh, I'm, I'm not, um, what I'm seeing is the same spirit that gave us the Crusades prevailing in modernity. Mm. Uh, and uh, uh, Christianity run amok um, is, uh, I'm not blaming it singularly for anything, uh, but uh, I think what if, if those, if there's, values from um, the Judeo-Christian tradition that have made it into the secular world, I would submit that lots of them are bad ones and that the ones that I want to see get there more um, is Jesus's insistence uh, that everyone is equal in mm -hmm. the eyes of the Lord. Uh, Jesus's point that it's easier for a poor person to uh, make it into heaven, uh, you know, the sooner does a camel pass through the eye of a needle mm. than, uh, than the rich. I'm not seeing um, any of that. Mm. Uh, moreover, there are other manifestations uh, of uh, Christianity that I would love to see uh, be more perfused in secular culture. St. Francis, Francis Assisi, who insisted that Humans, we should serve as God's emissary to take care of the rest of nature rather than uh, plundering the planet. Uh, but there's also, I think, secular um, uh, belief systems and ethical uh, uh, perspectives that I'd like it to work both ways. And mm -hmm. so I, I like, uh, for example, I like Emmanuel Levinas's ideas, the philosopher who talks about, uh, we have an obligation to other people that transcends uh, everything. And, and uh, Martin Heidegger, in some of his later work, he writes these really complicated essays about things. And he's like, you know, um, things have standing. Uh, you know, so I'm you know, here's my cup in front of me. And he's like, oh, yeah, you might think that this cup is meaningful to the extent that um, that you're using it. But he's like, no, this cup has uh, its own thingness. He writes about the thingnesses of things or whatever. And, and he ultimately concludes uh, that everything uh, has standing. And then there's another philosopher, Sylvia Benso, and she takes Levinas and Heidegger and, and juxtaposes them. She's like, well, why, why don't we think in terms of humankind 
having an ethical obligation to all things. And, and her point is that, as maybe absurd as that sounds, uh, that maybe if we start with that assumption that everything, alive or not, uh, has standing, well, that may be what is going to bring out the best in us in the long run, not the anthropocentric and arrogant view of humankind that we inherit from the Judeo-Christian tradition where we're created in God's image and uh, put here uh, in order to dominate everything that swims, you know, crawls or flies. And so I'm being very long-winded, but I, yeah, I think there are elements uh, of longstanding religious traditions that we should cherish and retain. And I think there's others that um, it would not be a bad idea to get rid to, of. Um, to respectfully abandon. Mm. Mm. Could you explain why the development of self-esteem, especially as a child, is so important in ameliorating our fear of death? Yeah. All right. So that's a, a, a really a fine query. And the the short, long-winded account um, is that we got to trace the acquisition of self-esteem uh, through infant socialization, says Becker. And um, he is here relying on John Bowlby's attachment theory. And the idea is that the human infant is born in a much more hopelessly dependent state, you know, than any other creature. A cat has kittens and five weeks later, you know, the kittens walk away. You know, dogs have puppies, you know, 12 weeks later. Uh, humans have kids and they can't even sit up <laughs> for three years and it takes eight years before they could function on their own, 30 years in America. But the point is, is that, uh, you know, that very early on, and Darwin noticed this, we can't do anything when we're little babies, but we can be anxious. And while anxiety is unpleasant, uh, it is highly adaptive because it alerts our ancestral forebearers that we need something and makes it more likely that uh, we will be attended to. And according to Bowlby, it's anxiety that is the impetus for the formation of our attachments with our primary caretakers. And the point is, is that early in life, um, we tend to get taken care of in an unconditional fashion. You know, you're hungry, you scream, somebody feeds you, you're tired, you scream, they put you to bed. But there comes a point uh, where we've got to alter kids' behavior in order to incorporate them into the culture or just to save their lives. And so, uh, you know, you can't wear shoes with mud on them, you know, when you walk into the house on the white carpet because that's supposedly bad. And you can't jump in the, the fireplace when the fire has just been lit because that will make you quite dead. And so the point is that we have to socialize kids long before they're able to understand why they have to do certain things and not do other things. And the way that we do that is through the conditional dispensation of affection. So when a 
a child does something right, uh, you know, parents are like, oh, you're great. You know, here's a piece of candy. Uh, and when you're a little kid, uh, when your parents are pleased with you, uh, that really renders you quite secure and makes you feel quite safe. Well, but when you do something wrong, your parents aren't always going to beat you, but they will all, it'll always be clear that they're not happy. All right. So you do something uh, wrong. I used to tell my kids, don't bring dead animals into the house and put them next to my head when I'm napping. Cause when I wake up with a dead pigeon next to me, I don't care for that. And, and so, and, and little kids, you can take one look at your mom or dad's face and know that you've done something wrong. Mm. And when that happens, then we feel anxious. Uh, and well, Becker's point is very early on in our interactions with our parents, we come to associate being good with being safe and secure and alive and being bad uh, with being insecure and possibly being abandoned by our parents, in which case we would be dead. All right. So what then happens, and here's where self-esteem comes in, is kids get to a point where they become vaguely and then explicitly aware of death. Specifically, they become somewhere around six to 10 years old, aware that their parents are both mortal and fallible. So my, you realize your parents are going to get old and they're not perfect. And what happens, Becker claims at that point, is that quite unconsciously, we transfer a, a bit of our psychological allegiance, quite a bit, away from our parents to the culture at large. Right? We still care what our parents think about us, but we become more preoccupied uh, with how we feel we are perceived uh, by the people in the culture around us. Do, do our parents then, uh, from the age of you know, one to between six and 10, do our parents function as our ideal then in the same way that we were talking about, uh, you know, cultural frameworks need an ideal like a, a figure of Christ or, you know, uh, Muhammad or whatever. Do, do do our parents function as our our ideal up until that point? And then when we go, when we reach the stage where we have to go out into society or perhaps where we start valuing society's opinion of us as much, if not more than our parents value us, that's when the cultural worldview comes into place. I, you know, I think that's a, that's an awesome way, Julius, of thinking about it. Now, I'm wondering whether attachment people would uh, stipulate that that's more true for securely attached mm. kids. But I would, I think that my gut tells me that my answer to that fine question is yes, that even the insecurely attached, they may be ambivalent about whom they idealize. But nevertheless, I do think that uh, until the age of uh, disillusionment, when you realize that those folks are fallible, that they do serve uh, as uh, proverbial all-encompassing repositories of truth and beauty whom you depend on literally and symbolically in order to make it through the day. That's a fine way of thinking about it. You also talk in your paper about how self-esteem is always dependent on 
cultural constructions and you contrast the values of the Middle Ages in Europe with the values of the 21st century as an example and you say that there are, quote, consequentially no absolute and transcendental standards by which human beings can ever differentiate between good and evil. But is it possible that things are objectively good or bad but just that our perception of whether they are good or bad can never be accurate? In other words, is it like... um, is, is it possible that an, an objective moral truth, there is an objective moral truth to the universe, but it's just beyond our comprehension of it? Yeah, wow. Uh, so uh, I think, uh, yeah, when, just when you were reading what I definitely wrote, I was <laughs> like, wow, I wish I hadn't said that. <laughs> because that that's definitely an overstatement. Um, uh, what, what, the more modest and defensible statement is just that we derive self-esteem from culturally constructed values that are somewhat arbitrary to the extent that the same affectation that um, affords high self-esteem in one time and place uh, might lead to shame and ostracism in another, you know, so the uh, one classic example would, well, so uh, in the Middle Ages, um, uh, usury was considered a mortal sin. Uh, and this idea that uh, you would uh, want to profit um, uh, to an absurd degree uh, uh, through your interactions with others was just considered heinous. Mm. And yet we would consider that to be the oh. paragon of entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, in ancient Greece, homosexuality uh, was not only tolerated, but encouraged as a sophisticated form of psychosocial interaction between the enlightened. Uh, and of course, today, you know, the Taliban uh, will put you in front of a building and then use a bulldozer to crush you underneath it. Uh, if you engage in homosexual activities. So I guess that's what uh, we meant when we said there's nothing absolute. But, um, you know... So there could be... So you could say that there's possibly absolute and there's possibly absolute standards, but our barometer is the thing that changes over time. Our, our, I think so. I think our, that's, that's right. Yeah. And I, I would like to think that... Um, that there, that we can at least strive, even if it's an, uh, an approximation to an unattainable ideal. Um, I, I, yeah, I, why not um, think in those terms? You know, I'd like to think that, uh, that it's possible to conceive of a worldview that valued life independent and above and beyond if you're one of us. Uh, and Maybe, as I was saying earlier, maybe valued more than human life, maybe off things. And, and, and Becker did in his last book, Escape from Evil, he did talk about his view of what a good cultural worldview would be like in principle. And he's like, okay, you know, it should, um, a good worldview um, takes care of people's physical needs. You know, how many people are fed and housed uh, given the constraints, the technology and natural resources at the time? How many people 
uh, are able to feel good about themselves? Or, or is it such, do you have cultural standards that make most people feel miserable? So back to the Middle Ages, where uh, in Christianity at its best, you could be the dipstick for a cesspool, or you could be the president of General Motors. But if you behaved with virtue, uh, you God would shine his countenance upon you. And so these were egalitarian worldviews. Everybody could, in principle, feel good about themselves. Well, today, if you're not the richest, if you're not the fastest, meritocracy has ruined us psychologically because we value being the best. And of course, that means N minus one people in every pursuit are failures. But, uh, leaving- but don't we don't we value a meritocracy in a psychological sense as well? Uh, the the best there's a it's good to be a good thinker. Oh, that's correct. Mm. But you, but we can be meritorious without being hierarchical to the point where second place doesn't matter. Mm. But there's a Harvard philosopher, a guy named Michael Sandel, who just wrote a book called The Tyranny of Merit. Uh, and he's like, look, I think we've taken things too far. You, you can't even be second best. You know, you win an Olympic silver medal and you have to go into rehab because you're so depressed. And his point is that our striving for excellence in the form of always being the best, uh, that means N minus one people are either depressed or enraged uh, at all times. Mm. It's probably a way of achieving greater excellence, but not achieving greater harmony between people. Mm. So so that that's right. And I again, I like the nuance of how you just express that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think there's any doubt uh, that uh, there are systems in place that have maximized excellence at the same time that they may also be amplifying misery. It's interesting as well because you could almost look at innovation as an anti-evolutionary path that we've taken because it could lead to our own destruction, whether that's by nuclear bombs or pollution or whatever. So it's almost like... Um, yeah, the the prioritization of excellence over harmony amongst each other isn't actually an evolutionary evolutionarily smart thing to be doing. Yeah, uh, and you get you get that a lot when people sort of um, sort of contrast the way uh, Indigenous Australians have you know lived um, for you know sixty thousand years, you know the longest lasting civilization ever, um, and perhaps it's because they prioritized. Know, harmonious coexistence over innovation. Do do we feel a certain sense of satisfaction in doing a sort of good deed, um, good in the context of our culture and time, because our body and our psychology is aligned with the cultural values of our time? I mean, like, would a would a kind deed be psychologically pleasurable to perform in uh, a time from history where charity was a vice rather than a virtue? Yeah. That's a, that's a great question. I'm going with, I would like to think so. I, I No, I love the, honestly, the scope and the direction of this inquiry. It's, a, it's a, what I've been more preoccupied with of late, which is to uh, not 
of be imprisoned by our own ideas and to start thinking more broadly, even abstractly, in terms of what might be possible beyond the confines of a cultural worldview. I, I would like to argue that uh, we are, uh, you know, uber social creatures who come into the world um, with uh, a great capacity for empathy and a high predisposition to behave um, in an equitable fashion towards our fellow humans. Uh, and in that sense, uh, yeah, I really, um, uh, yeah, I, I, I desperately hope um, that uh, acts of kindness and compassion and generosity and reciprocity that 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 there's just some evolutionarily based sweet spot that mm -hmm. is stimulated uh, by those kinds of acts. On the other hand, yeah, my fear is that for the most part, being good depends on the context of the values of the time. And I say that again, not to make this conversation overly political, but, uh, you know, right now things are pretty turbulent in, mm. in the United States. And, um, and a, a lot of people, uh, a lot of psychologists and a lot of political scientists are writing about that one of the things that concerns them uh, about former President Trump and the Republican Party in the United States mm. is that they now venerate cruelty and selfishness. Mm. And uh, they, uh, they dismiss concerns about the welfare of others as weak and foolish and socialist. Mm. And so that's such an that's such an interesting point because I mean I would have I was thinking like you know a, a philanthropic a, a philanthropic act you'd assume would always be um, baked into our DNA because it would you'd assume that it's a um, it's good for the uh, longevity of our species the idea that we can you know in a sophisticated way spread our wealth um, and I never would have until you gave me you know the example of Trump which is kind of like just staring you in the face I guess. Um, I never would have thought that the cultural worldview could shift that dramatically, but like, but I guess that that's conservatives versus um, the left in general, right? Although, again, I would uh, I would insist on behalf of uh, conservatives that conservative political philosophy does not <laughs> uh, in any way uh, render you a narcissistic sociopath. No, of course, this is a this is a particular and virulently malignant example mm, mm, absolutely and th this is important to note mm. yeah and no because i'd even um i mean my i guess my i'm not overtly political or anything but i guess i i generally buy into the more um sort of individualist you know um which is you know conservative approach to um you know society but yeah at the same time trump does seem like a particularly malignant uh, version of version of conservative thought, but um, where was I next? Sorry, apologies, Sheldon. Just uh, lost my place. 
Oh, and actually, I was going to ask you, so do you think Trump will win in 2024 while we're on the topic of politics? Well, absolutely. Uh, well, he oh. will win because yeah. he has worked faster than Hitler to undermine um, democracy. So Hannah Arendt, in her book about the origin of totalitarianism, writes mm. about how uh, fascists tend to win elections with a minority. So Hitler won with a minority. Trump won with a minority. And then they use democracy to end democracy. So, uh, and right now, um, the proverbial stage is being set to ensure victory uh, mm. through the series of uh, voter suppression laws. Mm. Uh, and so I, I would say he will win even if he loses, uh, because uh, another Hannah Arendt point is that what fascists do is to lobotomize their followers to, through the use of a big lie mm. to render them incapable uh, and, in fact, indifferent to facts or truths or critical assessment of declarative statements about reality. So um, my point is, is that he'll win because the system is now rigged to mm. ensure that it won't happen otherwise. And uh, with the electoral college system in the United States, he will surely lose the popular vote, I would submit by 10 or 20 million votes, uh, but might win in the electoral college, even without cheating. Mm. But the, the, um, the, there's no doubt in my mind, and maybe we're going a little far afield here, uh, but you know, when Trump announced he was running for president, there was a book written by psychiatrists uh, called The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, where they're like, this is not a political argument, but to have a malignantly sociopathic uh, person who's a malignantly narcissistic sociopath who is incapable of admitting error or mm. ever losing, that that's not going to end well. So mm. my biggest fear is not a political one. It's just that the uh, it would be funny and it'd be good for like a science a fiction movie that, mm. that a single individual, you know, an ambulatory assortment of all of humankind's worst traits uh, can literally destroy the entire world because he doesn't care about anything mm. except not losing. But anyway, I think he will win and it won't be good for humans. I think the main... I agree with everything you just said, but I think also uh, in a more sort of specific example, I'm have you been following the lab leak hypothesis about where COVID came from and the whole? Yep. And the thing that I really think is going to galvanise his supporters into wanting him uh, to win in 2024 is, I mean, Trump was right about the lab leak, whether, you know, whatever people say about him, he was right um, to say that it came from the Wuhan Institute of Virology and, you know, he threw into that all his, you know, um, racial connotations and, you know, made it made it messier than he should have. But I'm, I mean, even as an Australian, I find it uh, infuriating that, you know, uh, Dr Fauci hasn't uh, faced the consequences of funding that, that lab and whether Trump did it out of a racial conviction or because he actually saw the intelligence, he was right. And I just think if that's infuriating me as an Australian, I can't imagine 
what it's doing to his um, supporters who were, you know, yeah, I think yeah. I think I think that's going to be a big deciding factor in, um, you know, the equivalent of lock her up, like you know, the chance for um, during uh, the the campaign against Hillary. I think it'll be a lock Fauci up will be the cat cry of of the twenty twenty four election. That's right. Yeah, Steve Bannon, who's you know Trump's um, mm. a political advisor. You know, he said uh, after the last election, you know, look, a rational argument doesn't get people to the to vote, it's fear and anger. Mm. And uh, they're good at uh, stoking those. Mm. Um, I'd like to discuss Holbein's painting, The Ambassadors. Now, did you know the painting before I no, gave you the heads up? No, it was, uh, it was, you made my day. Uh, what an awesome painting. What, what do you think of it? Have you? Well, I think, like you said, it sums up in a pictorial form um, almost everything that we have been talking about. You got, you know, the distinction between the sacred and the secular. You've got Mm -hmm. all of the accoutrements uh, of modernity. Uh, You've got, you know, stately and serious gentlemen engaged in their pursuits. And yet, you know, throughout the entire picture, subtly and not so subtly, are uh, the images of death. Mm. Did you see? So that skull in the in the center, that stretched out skull. Can, can you see that? That um, object. I, I, well, all right. So now I, I got to be honest. I did not see it at first. Right. So that's the interesting thing. So what Holbein's used there is called a anamorphic perspectival distortion. I've actually used it a bit in my work, but it's, you know, you know, when you're at a, um, a, like a football ground and they've got, right, right. A, they've got an advertisement on the ground stretched out so that from the grep, from the stands, it appears in perfect proportion. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Yes. Yep. So, um, he's done that. So that painting, when viewed from the side, the skull lines up perfectly in perfect proportion. So it's, I, I love that idea because it's, you can't view it's the idea that the idea of death is death is impossible to think death in the mind of the living is an impossible thing literally to think about it's impossible to comprehend death and yes. Holbein, Holbein there has made it so that when you look when you see the ambassadors with their cultural accoutrements you can't you can't see death you literally can't see it and that's their you know they're surrounded by the physical manifestations of their cultural worldview but but then when you view it from the side, you can only see death and everything else sort of optically falls into chaos. Yeah, no, no, it's it's quite remarkable. Yeah, it's I think it's one of the greatest paintings um, ever made. I thought I thought you'd like it. That's why I wanted to. Well, no, it was it was yes, uh, yeah, incredible picture. It's just sort of it should be on the um, next edition of um, Becker's Denial of Death. I think. Oh, I like that. That's right. How how does art fit into all of this? I mean, is is great art less impressive and true through Becker's lens? Because rather than representing great truths about the art about the world, art would just be a constructed way of ameliorating our fear of death. Well, no, I thought he had the enormous respect for art um, in a number of ways. So you know, not surprisingly. Um, he, uh, you know, had the, it, it helps us address death anxiety. Um, I think it was Ralph Waldo Emerson, who's like, we flee to beauty because we want to 
uh, or or we flock to beauty because we're trying to escape the terrors of finite nature. But I, I think that, uh, you know, there's really more to it for these folks. And again, it's not all uh, uniformly negative for uh, the backers of the world. Art, um, and I like the Otto Ronk language that art is the way that we objectify subjectivity, that it is a, a means by, and Suzanne Langer, one of my favorite philosophers, talks about it in the same way, that it, it's a unique form of um, human expression that uh, is both social in that, uh, first of all, artists are at the vanguard of creativity. So every great thing has been imagined or envisioned by an artist long before the philosophers and the rest of us get to it. And it serves a social function. So that's something that uh, helps unite us, remembering that the original um, word, there's a Latin word from which religion is derived, and it means to bind. And so I like this idea of art uh, being quintessentially communal and social. But at the same time, it is through art, according to Freud and Suzanne Langer and other folks, that it's a, a remarkable way by which the artist comes to know her or himself. Uh, and as a bad artist, I can't speak to this, but as a good one, uh, maybe I can ask you rhetorically, did you ever do something artistically and not being arrogant or narcissistic, but you're like, wow, that I, I, I have, in a sense, transcended myself. I didn't know I, that was in me. And, okay. and I, I look at my own art and it serves as a means of self-discovery. So, I, I, yeah, I think uh, art is critical yeah it's um yeah it's like I certainly don't think I'm a good artist I think I'm competent but I guess it's a great relief when you get to the end of a painting and it at least looks competent um if not artistic you'd hope so but what what happens to the mind that doesn't try to ameliorate its fear of death but faces it front on um what happens in someone's mind at the very moment they realize they're about to die and there's nothing they can do about it? Is that person more enlightened than the person who ameliorates their fear of death? Oh, awesome. I don't know. So, uh, and I, 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 that's another one of these, uh, uh, yeah, I wish I had a few more decades just to, to think about that. It. Yeah. Because, the, the, you know, there's a literature about, um, you know, there's a near-death literature where people who believe that they're about to die but who don't, um, they there's some remarkable commonalities in terms of the experiences that they subsequently report where um, – there is the possibility that immediately prior to our demise, you, your life is proverbially presented to you. Even in a millisecond, uh, you know, so now we're talking about a tremendous uh, warping of the space time continuum. Uh, I, I, the image 
Julius, that I can't get over. I was in Manhattan on September 11th, 2001, uh, when the World Trade Center uh, was knocked over. And I didn't see that day uh, the people jumping off it. Um, although I've seen so many images of that. And I don't know if you've seen any of them, mm -hmm. but you know, lot, people yeah. holding hands that there seemed to be a kind of serenity uh, that I wish I could approximate. I, I would be the one like twitching and screaming. Uh, and so. Because um, that must have, yeah, for the people in above the 97th floor um, on September 11, they must have had so long to know that they weren't going to make it. It's, you know, and because um, I was listening to Alan Watts talk about um, uh, fear of death and he was talking about uh, this German this German guy who had started a, um, I think it was like a, a Buddhist temple in uh, the Black Forest after the war and he, a lot of his, the people he helped were people who had had near-death experiences um, and consequently... Um, psychological and spiritual crises because of that. And what what says that the the German guy was telling him, I think I should know the guy's name, but he was saying that at the moment these people realised that there was absolutely nothing that they could do about their existence. They're just their ego melted and they and in that that melting of the ego they realised that there's not a you know not a grain of sand in the universe that's out of place and that every, and it's at that sort of frustratingly at that exact moment that you are about to die that you understand the meaning of life and that nothing feels misplaced and i mean it's quite it's quite loose it's quite loosely articulated by me and um less loosely articulated by watts but still hard to yeah, but I, I like that. Uh, I mean, in principle, it sounds almost like Epicurean to me in the mm. sense of, you know, we're right now an assortment uh, of atoms, you know, that was here long before we got here. And at the moment we expire, they'll mm. be returned to the cosmic dance uh, of the cosmos. And there's something to it. There's, yeah, there's something to what's his point, but I just can't. It's not specific enough for articulated thoroughly enough for me to comprehend it yet. And I guess that's part part of the point. It's impossible to comprehend until you're at that situation. There you go. Yourself. Good point. What was, um, if you don't mind going into it as well, what was your day like on 9-11 living in New York? I'm always sort of fascinated to talk to people who are in Well, my New day um, was, um, I was a spirited one. So my old-timer story is that I was in the World Trade Center every Tuesday and Thursday at the hour that the planes hit for two years before. And the only day that I wasn't was Tuesday, September 11th. So just to illustrate how much chance, um, I'm not saying I would have been evaporated because I used to just be on the bottom floor, but I used to uh, change trains there uh, every Tuesday morning. And I had an unexpected change in my schedule just that day. So September 11th, I drove to Brooklyn, which is three miles from lower Manhattan. Anyway, to make a short story long, it was a beautiful day. I was teaching at the time. 
And the students in my classroom who were normally quite respectful were agitated and on their cell phones. And I said, what's up? And they're like, something has happened at the World Trade Center. And they were talking to people in the World Trade Center who were being told over the loudspeaker, everything's fine, stay where you're at. But we went outside and we saw that everything was not fine. And then the second plane hits and we saw the building fall down. And I ended up in Manhattan in the latter part of the day. And I got as far as Wall Street. Uh, the, not, uh, I wasn't trying to, well, actually I was, I was, tr- I was silly thinking that, oh, the building fell down, but my train will obviously still run, <laughs> which is idiotic. But so I was there that day and, um, it was, um, remarkable because on the ground, the people in Manhattan, we had no idea what was happening. There was no phone or TV, So people watching it on television knew more of what was happening than I did, at least that day. And I just find, I mean, because I was watching that documentary Turning Point that just came out on Netflix and that period between the first plane and the second plane hitting, it's so spooky because it was almost like um, everyone thought it was an accident and everyone's almost drawn like flies to a light like closer and closer and closer and closer and then the second plane and just the fireball on the on the I hadn't seen the footage for a couple of years and just the the fireball when the second plane hits and you're just thinking like instantly everyone is just being fried it's just yeah i it's hard to fathom to, to, how would that how would an event like that alter our especially in relation to our fear of death and just having it so flagrantly put in front of us like that. Yeah, well, our argument, we wrote a book about 9-11 uh, the, because the American Psychological Association asked us to do so in, in terms of our ideas. And our view is it was uh, one of the, the biggest death reminders in history, both literally and symbolically. So, you know, there was the actual carnage of 3,000 people dying and folks jumping off the building and then the rubble-coated survivors steam, you know, storming out of the building. But then there was the fact that the hijackers, you know, they, they chose their planes carefully. I think it was United Airlines and American Airlines that they used to attack the Pentagon and the World Trade Center, the ultimate symbols of our military and economic might. So it it was a one-two punch in the psychic groin of Americans that we have not yet recovered from. And again, story for another time, but I, I think that uh, looking back, it was the aftermath of uh, the events of September 11th that, of course, led to the misguided adventures in Afghanistan and Iraq that ultimately on the domestic front uh, paved the way uh, for somebody uh, like Donald Trump mm-hmm. to become president. So we're still... I think coming to terms with that, actually, we're still coming to terms with the fact that the civil war hasn't ended. So we have a lot of things that we've got to catch up on. Mm. I've always thought like the only 
I mean, certainly things just as bad or even worse have certainly happened in history than uh, 9-11. But, yeah, as you say, the way it was, you know, in, in the age of the camera, easily captured. Uh, the only thing that sort of um, seems equivalent to it in terms of, um, you know, a death reminder is the footage of the Holocaust and the liberation. That's right. The, yeah, I sort of see those two as um, on, a, on par with each other. Do you get more defiant cultural worldviews worldviews that are intolerant of other people's views in societies where the population lives in closer proximity to their own mortality? And, like, do, for example, does a jihadi worldview occur in countries that are more dangerous than others? Um, I don't think so. I, that's a great question. Um, I'm going with I don't know. Because I, I imagine the closer you are to death, the more you have to reinforce your cultural worldview because it's more and more relevant. Yes. that makes sense. No, mm. no, that does make sense. Mm. And yet our argument, which also makes sense, is that we're inundated by subtle intimations of mortality every day, even in cultures where it's not that obvious. I got to think about that one. That's actually mm. a good, good mm. point. Because it's, yeah... I've often, yeah, it is, so tough questions all around. Uh, the natural follow-on from that would be, though, if we can make this a society, if we can make a society where death is less and less likely and where we extend our life expectancy as much as possible, does that in turn create a society where we fight each other less? Yeah, that would be great, but according to Ernest Becker, it would be actually the opposite. So he has a dim view of, uh, the life extension, immortality, um, enterprise, not, uh, you know, people of goodwill could disagree about lots of things, but his point is that it would do nothing to diminish death anxiety, and it might have the bizarrely counterintuitive effect of amplifying it. And Why? his argument in the denial of death, he's like, well, uh, let's say you expect to live to 80 years old and you're 10 years old and you fall off a mountain, you know, into an active volcano and you're vaporized. Well, that's a tragedy because you just lost 70 years. Like if I fall into a volcano, it's not a big deal. You know, I lose a week or two because I'm on the cusp of oblivion. But let's say you expect it to live, you know, 250,000 years and you're 10 years old and you fall into lava uh, or so, so Becker's point is you might be able to banish death, but you'll never be able to banish chance events that result in the unintended and undesired elimination of certain people. And that that may serve to make us even more uh, apprehensive. So of it's, course it's, it, it's more of a tragedy because there's more of a chance that you won't die of old age. That's right. Now, of course, it's an open issue and an interesting question, but uh, yeah. Well, I think we can uh, wrap this one up then, Sheldon, and um, thanks so much for coming on. And um, yeah, like I said, I sort of warmed to your work as soon as I heard you on Lex Friedman's podcast. And uh, No, thank you um, for having me. Uh, this was delightful. Um, uh, great questions. Uh, I hope that the folks that listen to us um, find this to be of interest. But uh, as I was saying earlier, perhaps before we started, I find what you're doing 
to be uh, extraordinarily valuable and uplifting because my view is that um, these ideas are important, not because I have anything to do with them, but because they're important and interesting. And that um, it's through these kinds of, um, you know, just uh, well-intentioned conversations that I hope that lots of other people uh, will become engaged with these concerns. And that's a good thing. Mm. Oh, I appreciate that. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's really transformed the way I view art in particular. So um, I've gained a lot from this conversation and from reading your work. So thanks a lot, Sheldon. All right. Um, you know how to find me. Uh, looking forward to uh, talking again or even getting out your way someday if we 100%. ever get over the plague. That well, would be I'm, awesome. I'm actually, um, I was going to say, if you're ever in, because um, I'm moving to London in um, December. So if you're ever um, in the UK, be sure to hit me up. As, as in this December? Yeah. Yeah. In a month and a half. So Awesome. I'll be months. there um, in July of next year at Oxford. Awesome. And if you're around, not only would it be great to get together, but I will bother you to come and hang out if you want. 100%. Um, and be part of this program because your ideas would be really welcome. So I'll be in touch. 100%. That'd be great, Sheldon. And, yeah, I'd love to do one in person and um, catch up for sure. So awesome. Thanks, Thanks a lot, right. Sheldon. Talk soon. Have a good one. Bye now. Bye.